0: Hello and welcome to Talk Je A podcast series by Vietkaya I'm your host Sarah And today we have a very special guest with us um, His name is Andrew Low. He's a Malaysian Just like um, all of you who are tuning in right now And he has also um, created his own personal history By being one of the very few Malaysians To graduate from Harvard and also Stanford So I will just pass it over to him to just um, share a little bit about himself. So Andrew, over to you.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah. I, I, I really appreciate and very honored to, to be interviewed by you. Um, and just a little bit about myself. Um, hi, guys. I'm Andrew Lowe. I uh, just recently graduated from Harvard and Stanford, um, the first Malaysian to graduate from a special joint degree program uh, with the Harvard Kennedy School and the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Um, and a bit more about myself, I grew up in Kajang and Pataling Jaya in Malaysia, um, proud public school graduate here. I went to SMK Damansara Jaya. Um, and because of that, I believe strongly in the, the use of education uh, for social mobility and, and for ordinary individuals to achieve something more than themselves. So very glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you, Andrew, for agreeing to be part of this. Um, I actually sort of like um, stumbled upon your story on Twitter because um, I was just scrolling through and, you know, the first thing that caught my eye on on your Twitter post was you wearing a, a baju melayu for your graduation. And I was like, oh, you know, um, this is something I don't see every day or it's not a common choice for graduates to wear at a very prestigious um, university in the U.S. So we'll get to that much later. But I just wanted to ask you, uh, just now you mentioned that you um, graduated from a joint degree program, correct? That's correct. Okay, so what exactly is this joint degree program and um, what actually inspired you to pursue that field?
1: Yeah, Uh, so this specific joint degree program, um, let's take it from, let's zoom out. So if one were to do an MBA at any top business school in the States, um, it is two years long. And if one were to do a master's in public policy, for example, or public administration um, from a top public policy school, it's also two years long. So this joint degree allows one person to do two degrees in three years.
0: Wouldn't that be a little bit jam-packed for you? Because it's all just so constricted between like two years and then two years. Like how did you manage to balance it out? Because I, I'm not sure, you know, some people when they hear it, you're like, wow, this is so challenging. I can't seem to you know, it, it kind of overwhelms them.
1: Yeah, um for me it was it was a chance of a lifetime and very, very privileged to do this. Um, one of the um, I, I guess one of the most fulfilling and mini- meaningful things I've ever done in my life so I was very glad to have done it whether it's jam-packed or not so very glad to have done it
0: I see, I see Alright, and also I also saw in your tweet that um, you attributed your successes in both Harvard and Stanford to your mother and also your grandmother and you also touched briefly about you know the hardships that they went um du- during their you know formative years like when they were growing up, so would you mind like sharing with our audience like, um the stories that inspired you from your mother and your grandmother and how they overcame it?
1: Definitely, definitely. Um, so on my grandma's side, um, I remember when when I was young, she used to talk about like her um. Her stories in the during the Japanese occupation. So she was telling me about like how uh she and her family used to survive on plant roots, um just to um just just have something to put in their stomachs. They would run into the jungle uh to prevent uh from being raped, etc. And she never complained. Right? she's this really sweet, really strong old woman. Um and and the whole reason for telling me this was like to help me uh to give me perspective, help me understand the privileges that I have in life right now. Um, and the comforts that my parents provided for me, and also to to juxtapose that with like the things that were in the past. So things have be- been a lot better right now. Um, and also to challenge me to 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 think about the future. How can I make uh, life better for myself and and for my future family? Um, her resilience was passed down to my mom. Uh, my mom also grew up quite poor. She started working when she was nine to help the the family make ends meet. Um, Ooh, I remember. Yeah. It's a
0: pretty young age to start, you know, help to start providing for the family nine. Because nine is a Standard time three. where, you know, yeah, most children will want to say, Oh, I wanna go out and play with my friends or, you know, just spend those very innocent years. Um you know, make, it's like it's considered like the best part of their of their lives, lah. But, you know, your mom, you know, having to support a family at nine, wow, that is very that is very, very challenging.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree, which is why um I appreciate it so much. At the same time, to add some perspective to this, right? I think if we look back and ask ourselves and ask our parents these questions, I think a lot of them would say they started working quite early as well. You know, to be very honest, I, I don't know how unique this specific story is. But again, it is unique when we we take this and 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 compare it to um, the, the the parents of American students, for example, in, in Harvard mm-hmm. and Stanford. But if we looked at our parents and our grandparents, they all grew up during the Japanese occupation and post-war, They A lot of them grew up poor. So it, again, it's, I don't think it's that unique, although it is inspiring and poignant. And I tell these stories to challenge us to, um, to find strength and meaning in, in our own family's histories, and, and find inspiration on um, in terms of motivating us as individuals now to do better in the future.
0: Mm, yeah, because I think when you said this, I was suddenly reminded of my own mother and my own grandmother. So for mm. my grandmother, um, I'm not so sure about the specifics, but I also believe that she grew up during the, the Japanese occupation, and then um, life was very hard in general. Like, you know, poverty is sort of like, you know, the, the name of survival, you know, the game of survival. Everyone is just out there for themselves because it's a time of great hardship. It's a time of, um, you know, everyone just trying to provide for their family. So my grandmother, she actually worked as a school teacher at a, mm. at a you know, Chinese uh, primary school here in Penang. So, um, so, and then, you know, she brought up um, all four of her daughters, including my, my mother, And they were extremely poor back then. Like, my mom would always tell me that my grandmother, in order to provide for the family, she would go around asking people for money. And, you know, for us Asians, it's a very humbling thing to, you know, ask people for money. Like, okay, can you, like, spare me a few cash, you know, because I have children to feed. It was a very, very humbling experience. But I think it's thanks to these um, obstacles that my mother grew up um in that made her into a very resilient person. Like my mom is not easily faced. she is um, she's a very strong person. She's also a person of a lot of grit, a lot of determination. And I think these are the kind of um, circumstances that shape her to who she is right now, yeah.
1: yeah, I, I think that's absolutely beautiful, right? Uh, I, I, I thank you for sharing. and and I think the more we tell these stories, the more we talk about these things the more we find sources of meaning and strength um, for what we do in the future
0: mhm yep most definitely right so i want i right now just want to move on to a little bit, um what i would say like a fun part of your story lah so baju melayu um
1: <laughs> yeah
0: i because graduation like graduation was like okay you have to dress nicely you you know you cannot look sloppy so the first thing that you know guys will always say oh i must wear a student so tie, okay blazers uh, shiny shoes then for girls it'll be like oh i need to put on makeup um, lipstick mascara my eyelashes or whatever it is but for you you actually went i would say you went on a rather unorthodox approach you went traditional you know you wore a baju malayu. and i'm not sure about other people but for me it was like why like why a baju melayu and not a suit for your graduation? Like, maybe you want to enlighten me on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and since the post, I've been reflecting on it. Um, and, and I'll give you three answers. Uh, one is this idea around duty to myself. One thing I learned in school is that representation really matters, right? Mm-hmm. So if I don't tell my story who will tell my story? If we don't tell our stories, who will tell our stories? So in a way, this was representing me as a Malaysian, one. Two is is around the idea of duty to my classmates. And and this is not just wearing Bajum Layu, but also how I show up in class, right? The stories I tell, um, the the things I share. Um, US universities, especially the top ones, they really carefully curate their student body. And there's a reason for this. Because Harvard and Stanford, they know the value of diversity, whether it's by nationality, ethnicity, gender, religion, uh, language, sexual orientation, culture, and more. Class, we are put there for a reason, right? We bring our lived yep. experiences into the classroom to educate and to challenge our classmates. And as a result, my r- classmates really loved it. They 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 love learning something new about Malaysia. They're like, oh, this this mm. is Malay dress. Oh, thank you so much for introducing your culture. To us. So this idea around GT to my classmates, not just in terms of, of how I dress up during graduation, but also um, what I bring to the table in the classroom. And thirdly, I think that if, if you see the, the, the results that um, that like the tweet or, or the LinkedIn post that I had, it went viral. It, it clearly struck a chord amongst Malaysians, right? And 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 this has something to do, I think, with with the stories we tell ourselves as Malaysians or politicians tell us, right, part of it is that uh, there's this idea around um, minority Malaysians not entirely assimilating or fitting into the culture. Um, There's this idea around, oh, if you're Chinese or Indian, um, do you speak Malay in the same way? Do you respect the culture? Do you respect Islam? So I I think it was really interesting and, and, and just surprising for people to see, oh, there's this Chinese Malaysian boy at Harvard, and he's wearing baju melayu. He's representing Malaysia, even though he's not from the majority ethnicity, and it, it 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 struck a chord because it was like, oh, maybe I and this is my story. Maybe nation building did happen after all, right? Maybe despite what the politicians mm. tell us, our 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 nation is more united than our politics suggests. So I, I think there's something around there that people. Saw in me that they want to see in Malaysia, and I think it's important for us as young Malaysians to show that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that one I fully agree. Especially when it comes to clothing, because when I was in um when I was in high school, um during form mm. five, I actually had a few um Chinese classmates, and you know when you mm. go to a a national type school, if you're a, if you're non Malay you can choose whether you want to wear the pinafore or you want to wear the baju kurung. So I had one Chinese classmate. She would wear the baju kurung sometimes. It's not often, but it's sometimes. And then uh, there was one anecdote where she told us, like, you know, because her grandfather would fetch her from school every day. And one day, the grandfather said to her, why are you wearing baju kurung? Is it because you want to be a Malay? And my cousin was like, no. She's like, I just like mm. Like, It doesn't mean like I wear bajukurong means I'm Malay or I want to convert to Islam. So I think the problem with, I mean, this is my personal opinion. I think the problem with um, tying religion or tying one's race to a particular attire is quite problematic in the sense where it, does, it, it, it sort of like gives... A certain group of people Like a sense of exclusivity, of exclusivity Like Oh you have to be This In this group To wear this If you are outside of it um, You can't Or if you were to wear For example for us uh, Chinese we wear The baju kuro, Or we wear baju malay. You, you You are odd You are weird but I think, like you said, um, we have to look at the wider picture here. It's more of like displaying the spirit of multiculturalism, something that we Malaysians we often tout um, towards um, foreigners. We always tell when and whenever someone asks us like, "What's so special about Malaysia?" The first thing we will tell people is, that, "Oh, it's a melting pot of cultures, traditions, and you know, really and religions as well." But the the thing is when you when you go back to the to the public schools themselves, it doesn't seem to reflect that same multicultural spirit, and I think that's kind of problematic because as the saying goes, everything starts at home. It starts from the basic level. So, um, yeah. So that was just um, my little sharing about um, you know the relation between nation building and one wearing um, a certain. A certain traditional costume, lah. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's exactly right. That one hundred percent. I think the, the 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 two points that I hear is one, when we think of identities, we tend to lump in Malaysia. We lump like Malay equals Muslim equals this equals that, but there's so much complexity in it, right? There is diversity in terms yep. of ethnicity, which is different from culture, which is different from language, which is different from all these other things. Religion. Um, there's this story that sticks in my mind. Um, there is this... The, the, some, someone had, was talking about their like old grandmother who, when they picked up the phone, if someone said hello, she would put it down immediately because the person didn't say, Salaam Walaikum. So, <laughs> it was like, because someone <laughs> spoke English or hello... The, the 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 this grandmother thought oh therefore this person is not muslim or not malay and therefore i'm not going to speak to this person so 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 there's this Ooh. there's this idea around um if you are of a certain race you have to wear certain clothes or speak a certain language and if someone else from a different group does those things are we changing our affiliation right so if a non malay does wears baju kurung or speaks malay are we losing our non-malayans are we losing our Chinese or Indianists and the answer is no because one individual can be many things you can be very proudly Chinese and embrace Malay culture and embrace Malaysian acts et- and speak Arabic and learn about Islam and learn about all these things and still be very very proud um, very proud to be your uh, ethnic uh, your, your original ethnic background you can be very proud to be Chinese Malaysian so th- that part is really really in important to, to highlight, I think. And, and it's something that a lot of the older generation, in, in my experience, have um, a really emotional reaction towards that younger Malaysians, I see, are more open to.
0: Yeah, I think th- this one, I fully agree with you as well. I think the older generation, I think it's because, maybe it's because of historical circumstances. Um, I think mm. the most... Um, prominent example of this would be the May Thirteen riots. I think because of what they have mm. seen, the disunity, the conflict that they had to endure, perhaps it sort of like affected their psyche one way or another. And it sort of like formed that, um, what's it called, that misconception towards people of other races and ethnicities. So they tend to be, you know, for them it's more of like a coping mechanism where they say you have to stick to your own kind you know try not to open up to anyone else but i think for us the younger generation because we are more we haven't we, we ourselves we have not lived through the horrors of what they have so our perhaps we hold a more what is it called a more um, p- positive somewhat a more some a positive and more open mindset towards other cultures and their um, traditional costumes as well so maybe that's why it's easier for us in this current generation to be more accepting, you know, to, to try out other people's clothing, their food, but yet at the same time, we are still fiercely proud of who we are, our backgrounds, um, regardless of what we wear or what we eat. So yeah, thank you, Andrew, for for sharing um, your thoughts about it. So... I just wanted to touch a little bit about your academic journey at Harvard because um, I think it's quite uh, it's quite a special milestone mm. not just for you yourself but for Malaysians that you have represented um, Malaysia at a quite a high level so I just wanted to ask you so what were some of your proudest moments at Harvard
1: mm. I'll tell you two stories one at Stanford and one at Harvard My proudest moment at Stanford, and this was... um, We were part of the COVID class, so COVID hit when this happened. And imagine this. We were a class of 400 students in in the MBA um, program. We had never seen each other in person because we couldn't because of COVID. And so one friend of mine, her name is Summer. She's a concert cellist, so beautiful musician. She was like, let's do something to bring the class together. So she organized a courtyard concert where... Um, we got together in the courtyard of one of our residential um, buildings. Imagine the musicians in the middle of it and everyone else socially distanced on, on the floor, um, in the balconies, in, in multiple floors, um, in, in their living rooms and kitchens with their windows open, just reveling in this, like the, the talent and music of our classmates. It was so, so beautiful. And in this specific, um, in this specific event, I performed. Um, I performed Ooh. the song Hallelujah, and I was very, very proud that it is um, on Stanford GSB, um, Stanford's Instagram page. <laughs> I sang, I sang, and but but this this, this is to me this, um, one like my friends were like really touched. They're like, "This is beautiful." It brought tears to my eyes. But to me, it really showed how um, American universities it's not just about the academics what really matters is how you build community and this was a specific example of how we as students used our creativity to build community in just really innovative ways especially during the pandemic right a lot of my friends did other things uh they taught bollywood dances they did like workout sessions and all of which were aimed at building this kind of community at stanford so so that was stanford and and now I'll tell you a Harvard story. Um, ha- at Harvard, my my proudest moment was was during Halloween, uh, where I dressed up. Um, I I dressed in a a golden suit, and um, I had a like a mini saxophone on me, and I went into class um, in this Halloween costume. Um, and I went up to my professor. He's um, his name is Ricardo Hausman. He's a world famous economist. He'll probably win the Nobel Prize. In a few years, um, and I was like, "Hi, Professor. Guess what I am?" And he looked at me, and 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 before he was able to guess, someone else was like, "Oh, I know what you are. Goldman Sachs." Okay, because I was in a gold, I'm a man, and I have a saxophone, and he was like, "Wow!" He gave me a slow clap. Wow. Boom, and he was like, "Andrew, this is brilliant." This is amazing. This uh, you're gonna get extra credit. <laughs> so <laughs> I loved it. It was so like the the fact that this like Ooh. professor who was going to win the Nobel Prize gave me a slow clap and complimented me uh, was like the proudest moment I, I probably had in Harvard.
0: <laughs> wow, that's a high level pun right there. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> wow, that's really creative. <laughs>
1: Yeah, in, the, in the, when when he called me in the next few, um, when when I put up my hand for questions and answers, he would be like, "Oh, Goldman Sachs," and like the class would laugh because they knew exactly what they did. Um, but and the, the point here is not just that it it was funny, but I, I think the point here is that like at Harvard and Stanford, you know these these professors, top of the game, top of the world, but they know themselves are so secure, and they have this sense of humor, which is really important, which I. I think, you know, like I I don't necessarily see in a lot of Malaysian teachers or professors, there's this sense of humor and enjoying life that's there that allows people to play and be comfortable and being themselves and just have a little bit of fun that really helps uh, not just um, build community, but also this level of comfort helps people collaborate academically and really pushes uh, stuff into the next frontier.
0: Yeah, I think... For me, from my own personal experience, I think a lot of teachers here in Malaysia, they are very much constricted to the... I would say the Asian culture, where, you know, you have to be straight. You cannot show any emotions. Even if you do show emotions, you have to keep them in check. Because oftentimes, it's being drilled into uh, students that, you know, uh, you have to be serious in your work. If you... Like, even if you want to joke around, it's being frowned mm. upon. And... Sometimes I feel like we, take, we tend to take life too seriously lah here in Malaysia, where academics is always number one and everything else is either secondary or thrown out of the window altogether. So I personally feel um, both students and teachers here in Malaysia, we need to learn to loosen up. Lah. Like Life is not just all about studying. It's also about enjoying the experience while you are being educated along the way. Right, so now we've talked, we have now t- touched about uh, education. So, yeah, so you having been in the US for, for quite some time, I think the number one question everybody wants to know is, is it very difficult to get into Harvard or any kind of Ivy League school? Because if you were to tell um, someone, oh, I got into uh, an Ivy League school, you know, some the first thing people ask you is like, "Wow, how did you do that? Is it very hard, or did did you have to do something special to to get like special access into it, or you know, sometimes some people might jokingly say, Did you bribe someone? Did you bribe your way through to the Ivy League school?' So, um, so yeah, these are the kind of questions that often surround um people who have successfully found themselves in an Ivy League school. So do you have any tips to share with Malaysians who are looking to enroll themselves into one?
1: Oh yeah, I have so many things to say. Um, But the first thing and the most important thing I would say, and and this is also a lesson that I learned at school, at at Harvard and Stanford, is that the most important thing you can do is not to self-limit. Yes, it is going to be super hard to get in. Does that mean you shouldn't try? 100% no. Even if it is hard, you should try because it is one thing for you to try and for the school to say no to you. And that's fine because you've tried. You did all that's possible within your ability. There's another thing to say, oh, it's very hard, therefore I will not try myself. So
0: yeah, it's too different. Very, things. very
1: different. So hard, but don't self limit and just try because you become a better person by trying. There are a few things I would say in terms of, of, of getting to Harvard or Stanford. And, and this is um, going back to what you said, Sarah, um, that really resonated. One of my pet peeves in, with Malaysian students or Malaysia, the, the education system in general, is that we think it's just about academics. It's about how many A's you get. And this is so wrong academics yep. are necessary you have to be like brilliant top of the game etc but they're not sufficient just because you get what 20 A's for SPM doesn't mean that you'll get in no one owes you a spot in these in these in these universities right so that's one thing what the things that we deprioritize in a very like traditional asian culture are actually the things that matter How you make a change in society and the world, what you care about, the people you've touched. Mm. And if I look at the Malaysians who've successfully gotten into Harvard and Stanford, I see one thread that stands out for me. And this thread is that these people don't just talk. These people don't just study. These people are doers. They do something. They take action about something. Right? So they see an issue and they're so committed and passionate about their issue that they're compelled to do something t- to make it better, to resolve an issue. So, And this is what I want like, more Malaysians to think about. Right, How can you change your community or your society or the world? Right? Think about young Malaysians who are doing something right now. Read up about them and, then, and, and take inspiration from that. And, and changing the world or changing communities might be different things for different people, right? You can start a big organization throughout the nation or you can um, tutor your brother in a specific subject or your neighbor who needs help or your friend. And, and having those things, whether it's re- really at a micro level or macro level, they're very significant and they change lives, right? So think of someone who's changed your life and think, how can you be that person to someone else? Yep. So that's my spiel to, to, to Malaysians. Lastly... Lastly, what I would say is that like a lot of Malaysians are like, oh, I have this dream. I want to go to IVS, But but the two big constraints are, oh, it's really expensive. And two, I don't know how to do it. Can you please help me? So on, on the, the money part, I would say that especially at the undergrad level for your bachelor's degree, the IVS are very, very generous. If you get in, if your parents make less than 270,000 ringgit a year, um, Harvard will pay for your entire education. You basically get a full scholarship, right? So if you're very, very, very good, these American universities will pay for you to go. So there is always this thing there. American universities will pay. Don't let finances limit you. Don't self-limit. That's one thing I would say. Two, how to start. You need to start yourself because there's so many resources out there online. There are two parts. I would say uh, two things. I would say you should start with. One is this organization, this non-profit called USApps.org. USApps.org. So this is a non-profit run by Malaysian students who studied in the USA, and they help other Malaysian students navigate this really complicated process. It's really hard. It's really difficult. But this is a great starting point. The second. resource, I would say, that to start with, is this organization called MACEE. It's M-A-C-E-E. It's an organization affiliated with the U.S. Embassy, and they do, um, they give information, free information about American education. So start there, ask your questions there. There's a lot of work that you need to do if you want to achieve this dream, but never, ever, ever self-limit.
0: I think that's the that's quite the the most important thing. I think a lot of a lot of us that's that's ju- not s- just say about Malaysians lah, but also any any normal human human beings. Like our ne- for most natural instinct is like when we we are met with something um, difficult or something that seems impossible, our first response will be like oh, I don't even want to try anymore. Like I don't have time for this. I don't have energy for this. Like even if. I do try if I fail, what's the point? And a lot of people always tend to stop right there. But I really like how you emphasize a lot on not limiting yourself because it all like you can have all the best kind of academic offers being served to you on the silver platter. But if you're not going to take the first step in pursuing it, um it's just going to stay there and collect dust and probably disappear until someone else comes along and takes it away from you. So um, I think, yeah, I really agree with your point there saying that, you know, initiative is very important. You cannot just sit there and wait for people to, you know, quote-unquote, do your homework for you um, because this is your future. This is not their future. So um, it's really all in your own hands. So we have come to the end of our program for today. So thank you once again, Andrew, for sharing your personal stories and also... Um, advice or formulations who are looking to seek an academic future in the US. I really enjoyed um, listening to your stories and also uh, sharing a little bit of mine with you as well. Yeah.
1: What a pleasure to speak to you, Sarah. Thank you so much for this.
0: Okay, thank you again, Andrew. So um, to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. So if you like this episode, you can listen to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Or if you want to see more content from Fire, you can follow us on our social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and Telegram. And we'll see you next time. Bye.